morning everybody happy hump day and welcome to the news agenda with me fleet street fox and today i'm joined by the mirror's political correspondent amber and also dave burke who is uh, going to be looking after her today hello amber welcome for joining us uh, now this is the people's pay-per-view so get into the comments ask us your questions we'll do our best to answer them for you those of you listening later on podcast will just have to launch a political group and put the word popular in the title and see if that makes it so. So what have we got for you today? Well, the mirror has splashed on the first appearance yesterday of King Charles after his announcement that he has cancer shortly before he left Buckingham Palace in a helicopter for Sandringham, where he's going to be recovering from his treatment. Now, if you want to read reams of insight and analysis about that, there's plenty available in the mirror today. But while that is going to affect the news agenda for quite a long time, I suspect, I want to talk about something else which has happened this morning. Now, on page two of the mirror, there has launched a petition calling for everyone to have access to an NHS dentist. Now, Dave, it seems bizarre that in the fifth wealthiest nation in the world, and the one with the best known and the longest socialised healthcare system, we don't have that already. In fact, I'm pretty certain there would have been petitions about having NHS dentists back in 1948 when the NHS was launched. Why are we making this demand now? Well, it's, I mean, this has been a problem that's been stewing up for a long time, but we've now at the point where it's become so visible. I think we saw earlier on in this week, there were some absolutely awful looking pictures of people queuing around the block uh, when a dental service in Bristol uh, changed out, came into new hands, and you know, the, and people were sort of up at the crack of dawn trying to register because it's just so difficult in some parts of the country to get registered as an NHS patient, and this is causing some real problems. I think I was reading some figures earlier. Um, I think it's like thirty thousand children were admitted to A and E uh, as a result of tooth decay. Uh, Seventy thousand adults, uh, and that's just in a year. The fact that people aren't accessing this treatment and going up for their checkouts and so forth largely because they can't get some appointments and can't afford to go private. So that's 100,000 people in total in a year, a third mm. of them children actually being admitted to A&E with tooth decay. So this isn't just someone who's gone, I, I can't get a dentist, can you fix my filling? This is someone who's, whose problem is so bad that now they have to go to A&E with it. It's because of the pain, because of infection, because of they've, they've tried to do something at home with it perhaps and it hasn't worked. And there's 100,000 people whose dental problems are so bad that it's become an emergency. Yeah, that I mean, it, that's exactly right. And it's, you know, we hear some real horror stories about people that are resorting to doing their own work, work on the teeth, getting their friends to do work on the teeth. And obviously that, raises the risk of secondary infection and sort of what could be easily solvable problems if you had access to a dentist then escalating into something even worse so we're seeing a lot that this isn't just something that affects the dental service as important as that is this is something that has a knock-on effect across the entire health service uh i think i'm right in saying that uh, tooth decay um was the biggest cause of hospital admissions for five to 17 year old or biggest primary cause of hospital admissions for five to 17 year olds last year i mean this is a real big problem it's shocking isn't it it's really bad and and the the knock-on cost of that it must cost more 
to have to care for someone in hospital with health with tooth decay when it's got really bad rather than just sort of be do the preventative work first now what mm. do you think everybody have you been in that queue in bristol have you had to queue somewhere else to have a dentist have you had problems finding a dentist have you had to pull your own teeth or something um have you found problems trying to get your child to a dentist um we've also seen this morning um though there's been a government announcement about reforms to the dentist system hooray that's fixed it hasn't it dave well, um, I mean, there, there's certainly some good clips <laughs> in this, but uh, I think it's fair to say the uh, the experts aren't pleased. I mean, the uh, British Dental Association has savaged it. I mean, they say it's not going to halt exodus from the profession. Uh, I think it's estimated. I think we've seen about 2,000 dentists leave the profession last year, but uh, sort of largely because of the pressure they're facing, largely because of the funding arrangements. Uh, you know, there, there's a need for a big influx of personnel to deal with this. And certainly they're of the view that the plans announced by the government just aren't going to handle this. So what have they actually announced then? Because there's, there's been some stuff in there, but Labour has said that they were going to encourage toothbrushing lessons and stuff in schools. But mm. it's, that's one of the things the Tories have nicked. This, of course, why is Labour not announcing its policies? Because they get nicked if they <laughs> do. But what else, have, what else is it that the government say they're going to do? So they're introducing, they're ploughing about 200 million uh, they say into trying to fix the dentist problems. I mean, the um, certainly the British Medical Association will say this is a drop in the ocean compared to what's needed. Uh, they're looking at payments to dentists themselves. Uh, one of the big problems is that dentists are saying that the funding structure at the moment and the way that they treat patients, the money they receive as part of their NHS contracts doesn't take into account the amount of time it's taking. Mm. Uh, so there's... Um, so there's a new patient uh, payment that's being introduced by the government, somewhere between fifteen and fifty pounds. Uh, the uh... yeah, fifty to do what? To see a patient? That that sounds like it could be at the lower end of the scale is more likely. To, to yeah, I mean, I think under the um, under the current structure, I think dentists receive about seventy pounds for doing fillings and so forth. But uh, you know, this is creating some big pressures because, like I say, it doesn't take into account the amount of time it takes to provide this treatment. And yes. it's, uh, you know, most dental services are balancing pri public and private. Uh, the service is funded on the basis that it's not going to be it's not going to be something that the entire population uses. Uh, there's an expectation from the government and there has been historically that a big proportion of the population will go private anyway. Yeah. But, you know, obviously we're in a cost of living crisis. We're, uh, you know, sort of the, this just isn't feasible for such a big proportion of the country and the uh you know the access to nhs dentistry that i think um the uh you know the, the in some areas of the country it's it, there's nowhere that's accepting new nhs patients yeah one of the things apparently that the the government have announced today is they're going to be paying dentists offering cash incentives basically so they're going to pay dentists to see patients that they haven't seen for two years mm. at which point of course it's probably a bit late um but they're also going to offer them 20 grand to move to a part of the country where it's like a dentist desert and therefore they could they could sign up there. But, um, you know, we've seen this week, there's hundreds of people queuing around the block to sign up for that dentist in Bristol. The Mirror has been reporting on a day in the life of an average dentist, to, you know, who's pointing out the contracts are so bad that they get paid exactly the same whether they do one filling or 20 fillings, even though the 20 fillings might take all day and cost mm -hmm. far more. Um so, you know, the government or the opposition, are they going to do anything about the contracts system? Because 
that has kind of been, it's been a mess really since the days that the NHS was formed in the 1940s when the dentists all said, no, no, we want to stay private. We don't want to be part of this. So then therefore they were allowed to keep their private work, but have an NHS contract as well. And then the terms of that contract have obviously changed a lot over the years. They've agitated for one thing or another. The government has said, we must do this, that, or the other. And so you now you've got this kind of a system where it's not really an NHS dentist. It's a private dentist who's doing a bit of NHS contract work. And, yes. um, you know, because the NHS contract work isn't paying for itself, they have to do more private in order to keep the costs down for everyone, I suppose, mm. to keep the practice going and to pay their insurance and all the rest of it. Um, and we've also been now in this world where there's increasing kind of legal uh, firms offering help for dental negligence and stuff like this. They get sued and their insurance costs go up and all the rest of it. Is there not an argument for just saying, do you know what? All the dentists just come into the NHS. Well, I think this is the thing. I mean, we're certainly we seem to be at a tipping point now. The contracts that we've got at the moment are, aren't working for anyone because the cost of using even NHS services. I mean, it's not a free universal service. And that will put off people even sort of from going from using NHS services and the contracts, like we say, aren't working for dentists. We're seeing this mass exodus for various reasons. Mm. And there's no incentive for dentists to take on this work when the amount, you know, like you say, that, you know, a day spent doing various fillings for someone just won't pay, you know, won't pay for itself. No. And if, a, if someone hasn't seen a dentist maybe for two years and got a lot of very complex problems as a result, mm. it'll take a day in total perhaps to give them all the treatment they need and that's the day you're not seeing the other 50 patients who you should have seen that day rick says it'll save the nhs in the long run if you give dentists all the, the places now well you'd have thought so wouldn't you but it just seems to have been um just not sorted at all it's an absolute mess ian says how about more dental hospitals set them up in existing nhs hospitals is that an idea has labor said that this is what they do if they come to power well, Labour have committed to provide to providing more appointments. They say that they're going to offer incentives for new dentists to work in areas with the greatest need. Uh, they've obviously, like you say, committed to the uh, supervised tooth brushing, uh, and they want to shift the focus to prevention. But no, I mean they're they're not proposing the kind of big overhaul on that scale either. Is that because they really don't want to? Do you think, or is it because, as we saw the tooth brushing thing, whatever they announce? The government's going to nick if it's too far out from the election so although people um like our viewer there just is interested in that and i could see that a, a dental clinic in hospitals is something that most people go oh yes please that's a good idea mm. but the emergencies for when you've suddenly got a, a crown fallout when you you know when something's super expensive you know you go to your, your perhaps your private dentist even for checkups but you have an a and e for dentists i suppose um maybe they're leaving that kind of thing till later or is it something they're just never going to do I mean, there's so many policy areas at the moment. I mean, we, we would expect this to be fleshed out closer to the election. Uh, we know at the moment that they're very reluctant to do anything that would come with cost. And I think the reality is that the cost of overhauling the dentist system would come with, with absolutely enormous cost. The, uh, you know, the, there would, I'd imagine, be very strong resistance from dental, to dental services to moving fully into, into the NHS unless there's, you know, sort of, they're they're compensated on a on a similar level to what they are uh, going private. Yeah. So I mean, the sorry, God. I was going to say it's worth pointing out that there was resistance from doctors when the NHS was formed, mm. and now they work in the NHS, and there's not you know there's not an awful lot of, of 
concerned that they shouldn't be. It just it's part of when it becomes the system. You know, it obviously does work better in many ways. Um, just because someone's resistant to, to change doesn't mean that you shouldn't change. Absolutely. I mean, I think this, you know, from from someone that takes a step back, I think this is inevitably the route that we have to go down. I think the current system of trying to get the balance right just isn't working. Mm. It's, you know, sort of there, there needs to be a point, like you say, of being able to, in some areas of the country, if you get a really urgent issue with your teeth, you could be waiting days, weeks, or you might not be able to get an appointment at all, in which case you move to more drastic area, exactly. more drastic methods. Yeah. Or you're turning up at an NHS A&E unit with something that you're not necessarily going to be able to find the staff that are equipped to deal with it. No, and the, the impact that's had on your life in the meantime, um, of course, is infinite as well can do mean all kinds of things for you we did see one thing in the, the diary of a dentist that we carried i think earlier this week or last week which was he was pointing out he had a patient who needed a lot of work done and he qualified as an nhs patient and therefore he only had to pay 70 pounds towards it and the patient still went white when he was told he's got to find 70 quid mm. that is still a huge amount of money for you know someone who's living on a pension someone who's on universal credit but it's only about 80 quid a week what are you going to do you know, um, people don't go and get the treatment. I mean, those are the costs involved. It's as simple as that. It has to be sorted out. I'm sure we'll come back to this more, especially, I think, as we're running up to an election because it's going to be a very big issue. It's going to be totemic. Now, the other big story, which I suspect is going to affect the news agenda for a while to come, was the launch yesterday of the new paramilitary wing of the Conservative Party. We've got a bit of video from it, and here it is. We've been swimming against the tide when we're talking about conservative values. Whether it's what's going on in our schools and the fact that wokeism seems to be on the curriculum and in our universities and in our corporate sector, there seems to be confusion about basic biological issues like what is a woman. Good God, she's back. Um, She's back and she's still talking rubbish. And she, I can almost see there once or twice she was kind of pausing for laughs, like in the port markets. But she, then she was stopping herself and trying to say the next bit. Now, Dave, you were there. You went to this launch yesterday of the pop cons, as they're being mm -hmm. called, the popular conservatives. <laughs> um, tell us what happened. What was it like? Well, this was the launch of yet another faction of the Conservative Party. There, we heard various speakers. Jacob Rees-Mogg was up. I mean, he gave uh, quite the rant about various things, including the Supreme Court and the Rwanda decision. Uh, we heard a lot of politicians blaming uh, effectively civil servants, quangos, people like this, saying that although we've got the will, we're being scuppered. I mean, you know, which is, uh, in, you know, which is an incredible flex after 14 years of power. Mm -hmm. uh, we heard Lee Anderson saying that only when he's out door knocking with people, only weirdos, uh, only the odd weirdo brings up green issues and net zero. Uh, and it obviously, like that coal was sustainable, didn't he? At one point, he did. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was it was quite the uh, it was quite the science lesson for us. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you know, coal comes from trees, so therefore it's an environmental fuel. God. Yeah, God. I mean, it's um, yeah, there's. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, if it was, you're watching uh, Lee, coal came from when the entire like planet was covered by the rainforest or ocean, and everything there was therefore huge amounts 
of trees and ferns and animal life that managed to sink to the bottom, then got subsumed into the Earth's crust, subjected to massive heat and pressure, and could be found again 100 million years later to release the power of the sun and the warmth in, in a fire, right? But that in itself then polluted the planet. And unfortunately, between then and now, in the 100 million years since the coal was formed, we no longer have the kind of space or the kind of resources that would be making enough coal every week, like, for more coal. It's gone, mate. Gone! Not sustainable. Sorry, Dave, carry on. No, you're, uh, yeah. you're absolutely right. So, yeah, so we uh, we heard from him and his thoughts on net zero, uh, which is obviously something that we're seeing more resistance from on the Tory right. Uh, we saw um, a Tory rising star and election candidate uh, called Myri Fraser. Uh, she aimed her gun straight at Rishi Sunak and said that the smoking ban uh, that he's planning on bringing in this rule whereby current 14-year-olds will never legally be able to buy tobacco. Uh, she, bland, she branded it ludicrous. This is something that Liz Truss has also said she intends to vote against. Uh, she's going to be an interesting character. She's um, she's the candidate in Epsom and Yule, and she's uh, sort of previously described Donald Trump as incredibly refreshing. <laughs> uh, I think we're... She might know, drink a bleach. Yeah, I mean, she, she'll certainly fit into that wing of the party. So the... Um, so yeah, so the uh, so we saw her, and then obviously we saw the speech from Liz Truss. Uh, I think you know we're going to see her for years and years and years, trying to explain to us how the forty nine days of chaos, the increased mortgage fee, all the issues that we're seeing now as a result of what she did and that mini budget were everyone's fault but her own. Uh, you know, she's she's made it very clear that she thinks that uh, you know the orthodoxy and the in, you know, within the civil service, within the financial institutions, held her back, and that actually she had great ideas. It was everyone else's fault that this, uh, you know, that none of this worked. Yeah, Rachel says her saying that supporting LGBT people is a bad thing. It's absolutely disgusting. We had a comment. I think it was from someone called Lynn about she's got a cheek. She was useless, Lynette. There you go. Wow, she's got a cheek. Um, Aaron says, Liz Truss, the poor man's Maggie Thatcher. I don't think he's, he's even Maggie. I think Maggie would, would well, just be think, speechless at what Liz was doing. Well, I think the awful thing about this, I mean, we know from the polling, certainly the the figures that came out earlier this week, we know that she's got a poll rating of negative 54. Uh, you know, that compares against Rishi Sunak, who's on, uh, on minus 27. She's incredibly unpopular with the public, who will always hold again, who will always yeah. hold what happened against her. But she still retains her base. I mean, when she came up on the stage and when she walked into the room, there were huge cheers in the room, as there were at Tory Party Conference when she yeah, gave us. Were there people who were paid to cheer or were there for some other reason? I mean, it's kind of astonishing. She's... Well, she, as you say, she's the least popular politician in living memory. She, well, she blame what happened in her 49 days on, on the city or ec economics or other things, but you really can't blame trans people for what happened to people's mortgages. You know, she's just... No, and I think this is the really dangerous thing. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the election. It's the the... Tory right know that this culture war nonsense is going to feed, is going to play well with the party membership, not with the wider public, I don't think. But we certainly saw during the leadership race with um, with Rishi Sunak and uh, Liz Truss that you could rely at some point on her saying, you know, and I know a woman is a woman, and then pausing for the applause, which she would get from, you know, the sort of harder right members of the Tory party themselves, who are quite a long way right of the wider population. 
Exactly. This is the problem, isn't it? The Conservatives has. Rachel says Maggie did at least believe in climate change, although she was still awful. You know, the fact that Liz, she's so she's far less popular than Rishi, who everybody hates apart from his wife and his helicopter pilot. Um, you know, she hasn't gone quietly, has she, since this sort of disastrous 49 day reign of terror that she had last, only last, was it last, year before last? Kind yeah, 2022. Before last, 2022. Oh, God, it seems like only last week. In fact, she's popped up again and again. So she's been visiting the neocons in Washington, for example. She's now leading this political faction in a, in a party that's already got about a thousand different factions. Is this, do you think, is this a genuine new thrust for the Tories, which is going to define the party for its shape and its policies sort of into and beyond the next general election? Or is this just like a completely deluded Liz Truss and cronies who, who think if they call themselves popular conservatives that it will somehow make it so? Well, I think she knows. I mean, she's won a leadership election. I mean, we in terms of running for the leadership again, or certainly, you know, she, we, we all know she's a spent force. I think were the Tories to decide that they were going to give her another shot, I think the public would not be forgiving at all. <laughs> I think the public would just move. <laughs> I mean, I, I find it absolutely incredible. I mean, she, she's very much like, I, I mean, me personally, if I make a mistake, I'm absolutely mortified by it. And you feel, you know, sort of struggle to make eye contact with people and so forth. I mean, you feel absolutely ashamed and the absolute brazenness of Liz Truss, who's literally added hundreds of pounds onto people's mortgages every single month with her absolute incompetence. She nearly crashed, you know, sort of a big part of the pensions market. She, you know, the the damage she caused was absolutely incredible. And now she's back brazen as you get and, uh, you know, not taking any sort of responsibility for it. Mm. But I think it's interesting. I mean, there were a lot of high profile Tories, not just among those speaking, but uh, sort of in the audience as well. Uh, you know, we saw uh, Dame Pretty Patel there, who will inevitably, I think, be involved when there's a leadership contest uh, come the next election. And I think that's going to be incredibly ugly. I mean, I think we're going to see then just how divided the Tory party is. Uh, and bear in mind, to put in context, the launch of the Popular Conservatives, so-called, are joining an already very crowded field of groups on the right of the Tory party. I mean, we heard a lot about the five, fa the five families, as they were dubbed, during the Rwanda votes. Uh, so there's already sort of five different groups of hard right Tories who, uh, you know, who want to see lower taxes. They want to see a harder policy on immigration. Uh, they're very much leaning into the culture war um, issues that, you know, the, I think we're going to hear more and more about. And hopefully Labour will take a more moral stand against. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I mean, sure, though, there, are, there are some people in those groups who are in more than one group. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg was European Research Group as well as... Oh, absolutely. absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of overlap. Some of them are very split within their own heads, aren't they? Well, I think about... the, the strange thing about this is I was speaking to quite a lot of people while I was there because the, the thing I was really curious about is where does this group fit in and why is there a need for it? Because, the you know, for a, for a Tory MP on the right of the party who wants a group of like-minded MPs to join against, particularly those that are getting increasingly hostile to Rishi Sunak, they're already very well served for groups that they could potentially join up to. Like you say, there's European, you know, the European Research Group, the ERG, uh, you know, there's Conservative Growth Group, there's Northern Research Group, there's New Conservatives who have only sprung up in the last year. Uh, certainly, though, the, there were people from those groups, only Lee Anderson's been very involved in the past in the New Conservatives. So there is, like you say, a lot of overlap between the two. But where this new, this popular conservatism fits into that, you know, strange new ecosystem on the right of the party, 
remains to be seen and how influential they'll be in terms of uh you know sort of who they're going to draw in whether they're going to cause problems down the line for uh you know sort of when it comes to drawing up a manifesto mm. that's it because they're going to be seeking to influence policy and so on aren't they now rachel says not just a couple of hundred quid on her mortgage a thousand pounds on my mortgage thanks to liz i know someone who's had a couple of thousand put on their mortgage every month uh it was pretty horrific people to have to deal with now there was um another spectre at yesterday's fairly ugly feast, which was Nigel Farage, right? Yes. The UKIP leader, now pretend journalist, who turned up, uh, didn't ask a single question, of course, and was arguably more popular than Liz because he was getting stopped for selfies every five seconds, apparently. Dave, what was he doing there? Because he left the Tories 30 years ago. Well, I mean, he he said in advance he was there in his capacity as a, uh, as a journalist for a uh, right-wing news channel. He's he's very much you know he he's very much visible. I mean he knows that a lot of this is being pitched for him. The Tories know that if they can bring him into the fold, there's rewards to be had from doing it. Uh, you know he made the point afterwards. He said that he liked a lot of what he'd heard from the stage, but he also knows that whether that Rishi Sunak, who will ultimately be responsible for drawing up the next manifesto, isn't going to provide this. So I mean I think Nigel Farage poses a very big problem for the Tories because they know that if they they'll be desperate to try and keep him on side I mean the best case scenario for Sunak and co would be to draw him back into the Tory fold because they know that if he were to sort of get get more visible stand for a seat potentially I know he said he's not going to do it because he wants to be more involved in the US elections but if he were to stand for a seat you know sort of take a more visible role leading Reform UK for example that's a you know that's a real big split on the Tory voters, especially knowing that a lot of the Tory membership is a long way right of the of the general public. Yeah, and knowing that even within the you know there'd, there'd be a big risk of defections as well. Certainly, some of the factions that we've seen that we saw yesterday and that we see in groups like the New Conservatives, I'd imagine if they if they come forward and some of the policies on tax and immigration don't make it into the manifesto, I think there's a very strong chance that you'll have a lot of people that will sort of re re-emerge very quickly as Reform UK candidates. Yeah, some, perhaps some of those who've stood down and are going to, uh, as Tories. Andy says, the Thunderbird, Thunderbird puppets had better controlled hands than the Trust puppet, and a puppet she is. Now, quickly, before we move on to um, uh, good news, I want to just have a quick chat about this point that you've made there about the um, the Conservative Party and its base. So it's got a strong part of its of its roots, its activists, its party members, its MPs, who are quite on the right of the party, who are very um, right in terms of they want tax cuts, they want um, business to have far more, um, less regulation, I should say, far more freedoms, less regulation um, than perhaps most of the population do. And if Rishi is going to get re-elected or save as many of, of those MPs' jobs as possible if they lose the election, then he has to appeal to the broadest possible base, right? He cannot appeal just to this hard right kind of nugget of, 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 of hardliners. He has to go broader, but he can't keep them happy if he goes broader. So he's got this fundamental Real big problem, isn't he? That he's got to try and appeal through a more extreme white wing media that we've seen emerge in the last few years, a more extreme base that's that's come out, perhaps been radicalised a bit by Brexit, Brexit and other issues, uh, and yet a general population that is perhaps certainly more centrist and maybe even a little bit more left wing in the wake of the pandemic. So, how is he how is he going to square that? 
how can you possibly? Well, I think with a great deal of difficulty. I mean, he certainly, the Tories, whoever was in charge at this stage is going to be a victim of their own success in that in 2019, they saw so many places turn from Labour to Tories mm. by very narrow majorities. But in many ways, that it was a snap election called, called to try and finally break this Brexit deadlock to, uh, you know, sort of people being told that the that Boris Johnson had what he described as an oven-ready Brexit deal, uh, albeit subsequently turned out to have a few issues with it. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, <laughs> I, I it wasn't a chicken and it was nowhere near the oven. But no, yeah. I, I, say, I, say this, I say this very generously to him because there's a whole other avenue we could go down at some length. But the um, but yeah, so we had a lot of people that were probably voting Tory for the first time, weren't necessarily likely to be long-term diehard Tory voters. But we saw this area down the Red Wall, places like Ashfield, where Lee Anderson won, where where in normal circumstances wouldn't have previously in previous elections been a target Tory seat. Now, obviously, the pressure now they've got these seats is to try and retain them. Yeah. And, you know, sort of, I mean, certainly there's uh, there's one Tory MP, James Daly, who has a majority of 105. He was uh, and he was announced as uh, um, Tory deputy party chairman this week. Uh, it's sort of very popular among the, you know, among the Tory rights. But, you know, places like, places like this, it would be in the normal run of things would be hard to hold on to seats like this. Having now changed leader two times, got. Rishi Sunak, who's who's sort of very unpopular with the public anyway for various reasons, and the general malaise where you see every there's this sense now that everything's falling apart. We kind of feel like we're in the you know sort of fifteenth series of a Netflix series where you know sort of all the characters have kind of run their course. They're bringing back characters from the first series. It, you know, sort of everything just feels like it's kind of last days of Rome. Everything's falling apart type. Yeah. Thing. I think there's a general sense of that through the population. So in terms of having a wider appeal, I mean, this is going to be very difficult for Rishi Sunak because if he, uh, you know, he hasn't got a uniting issue like Brexit and trying to break that deadlock to try and sort of rally the country around. Uh, you know, in the last election, Boris Johnson chose to call it for that reason and he was able to package it and say, look, you know, we can finally get Parliament moving again by doing this. I think, you know, sort of where in any situation where Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister and things have run normally in the past few years, I think he would find it, uh, it difficult, albeit he'd probably have better control over the parliamentary party. Mm. Yeah, well, I, think because... I think maybe it's going to get to the point where, uh, you know, Rishi Sunak might go full Walter White, uh, you know, in the in the season finale and just sort of end up burning <laughs> the barn in the middle of nowhere, uh, laughing his head off crazily. I mean, I kind of think as well, I mean, who, who's he going to listen to? Because I think they, they've been a victim of the fact that they had this leadership array, this leadership race and the way the Tory party is structured. It's the membership that choose who who the leader is. And we saw that summer of them choosing the candidate that the wider public didn't necessarily want to. In terms of the parliamentary group that were very strongly in favour of Rishi Sunak. The party loved the promises that Liz Truss was making, albeit, you know, sort of being told by, you know, pretty much, you know, by economists, by Rishi Sunak himself, how unfeasible what she was planning was. Uh, it transpired that she that this was true, but there's always the risk, as long as this system's in place, that the, you know, sort of the next time that there's a leadership race is going to go through exactly the same process mm. with people who are very easily seduced by promises of tax cuts, uh, sort of immigration, they know which buttons to press. Mm. And trying to trying to square that with effectively leading a party is going to be very difficult for 
which you've seen that, let alone appealing to the public. It's, uh, you know, when you when things just feel like they're going wrong on so many fronts. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. Glad, glad I'm not Rishi Sunak yet again. Well, um, yeah, exactly. On Twitter, David says about dentists, their contracts were changed around 30 years ago because they were ripping off parents by doing fillings on kids whether they needed them or not. Don't know about that, but that's what David thinks. What goes around comes around, though the present rules are just as bad, but the other way around. Um, we've also got Maximilian talking about Liz Truss. Why isn't this windbag behind bars? Um, well, she hasn't committed a crime, although she's definitely not very popular. Jonathan says on Twitter, she cannot take responsibility for her actions because she just doesn't get it. She's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Years ago, she'd have been in my class sitting at the round table with the trusty teaching assistant. <laughs> oh, dear. <coughs> you go and sit on the round table with the teaching assistant. Thank you. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, right. We have managed to find some good news in the world. And while I gather myself, uh, let's uh, run VT, please. Now, the People's Republic, South Yorkshire, is renowned for many, many things. But now it looks like we can add saving one of Africa's rarest creatures to the list. Yorkshire Wildlife Park in Doncaster has welcomed the birth of a new black rhino calf, which has yet to be named, but is the product of a global breeding programme, which hopefully one day we'll see them reintroduced back to the wild to restore the population. Dave, is this proof that drinking Yorkshire tea, eating raw <laughs> bread, could be the way to save us all from extinction? Well, I mean, fair play to the people at Yorkshire Wildlife Park. I mean, this is uh, this is great news. And the, the, little, the little rhino, some of the pictures that we see of him, he looks so happy. It's, uh, you know, I mean, th this is great news. Obviously, uh, you know, a critically endangered species is, uh, you know, it's it's One very point, good news. Not, not just born into captivity, but born hopefully with a chance of, of freedom, which would be... Um, to my mind, at least one of the best things. But I think fair play more to uh, the mother, who's called Najuma, who endured 15 months of pregnancy, the poor woman. Um, but I think that's fantastic. Uh, and maybe it is just the Yorkshire tea. But so long as Liz Trust doesn't go there, because we really don't want her to keep coming back from the dead, please. Now, um, the calf hasn't been named yet. I'm sure the Wildlife Park is probably having some kind of a contest or uh, is thinking about the name. I Personally, my option would be, Call it Robin Hood, which is Doncaster's most famous son. It's nothing to do with nothing. It's Doncaster all along. Coffee McCarthy face. <laughs> oh, no. If we left, <laughs> that's why they won't be having a vote. If you leave yeah, the they kill polls like this forever. Yes, exactly. The path will be called Liz Truss is a and we <laughs> we can't be having that. Anyway, thank you Dave for taking us through all that. Thank you, Amber, for being well behaved. She only wriggled really badly. I noticed when Lee Anderson was mentioned, she seemed to be quite disgusted <laughs> and comfortable at the thought. Um, <clears throat> thank you everyone for taking part. <clears throat> uh, if you're listening on podcast, please leave us a review so other people can find us. And we will see you all again next Monday for another edition of the News Agenda. Until then, everybody, stay safe. See you on the other side. Tatty bye.